Are you looking for your next podcast binge to lose yourself in? Let me introduce you to a story that begins with sweet romance but quickly turns into betrayal and the far-reaching consequences of one man's deceit. It's an account told by the women whose lives were forever changed by it. You probably think The Stories About You is a podcast hosted by Brittany Art. And it's not just another podcast. It's an exploration of self-discovery, growth, resilience, and healing. And it's all told in a unique format. And this is why I'm so excited about this one. This is Brittany's story, but she doesn't just host it like a podcast in the traditional sense. Through immersive soundscapes and the voices of the women affected by these events, this podcast creates such a unique experience experience that's going to make your headphones glow in the dark. I can't wait to get started and I hope you'll join me. Listen and follow. You'll probably think the stories about you wherever you listen to podcasts. These conditions, um, Western medicine has very, very few answers for. So I was really forced to go outside of the system um, to look for new answers. You're listening to Dr. Cynthia Lee on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Today, we have a physician on the show. So we're moving out of the world of psychology into the world of medicine. And it's a real treat to talk to Dr. Cynthia Lee. She's a physician who is currently in private practice and practices integrative and functional medicine and serves as faculty for the Healer's Art Program at University of California, San Francisco Medical School. But she also has a really diverse background where she's worked in Kaiser Permanente Medical Center, San Francisco General Hospital, and St. Anthony's Medical Clinic for the Homeless. And she talks about her own experience with recovery from an autoimmune disease, but also how she came about some uh, sort of alternative practices to healing that are out of um, the realm of traditional medicine. So Debbie, you, you work in a medical setting, and I'm, I'm curious how this interview hit you. It was very interesting. I do. I work on an interdisciplinary medical team. I'm the one of the psychologists on the team. And what I think is so interesting is that we have this traditional approach to Western medicine where you go in, there's something wrong with you, you get a diagnosis, you get a treatment, and you get fixed. And that's kind of how we tend to look at medicine. And there are times when this works great. Like my newborn baby had an infection. She got IV antibiotics in the NICU. It saved her life. So in some cases that, you know, is the best approach. But a lot of times it's a lot more complicated than that. And I used to work in the chronic pain clinic in the VA for the VA where I work for years. And often people would have these really complex issues. Pain is often not so simple as that, as she talks about in this episode's and what happens, patients get frustrated because they go in looking for that diagnosis and treatment. 
And it doesn't work like that. And providers get frustrated because they feel like they can't help their patients. And pain is really complex. We talked about this in our episode with Dr. Adrian Sloan way back, a long time ago. Often what's needed is more this kind of mind-body treatment, overall health behaviors and wellness, behavioral approaches, physical therapy. Um, And I think more and more medical systems are moving in this direction of functional medicine and looking at the whole person. Within the VA, there's this new movement called the whole health model, which really looks at the whole person in context, their quality of life, their goals. It's much more collaborative between the providers and the patients. And it's, it was really interesting for me to hear this episode because it's really in line with that model of working together collaboratively and looking at the whole picture. It seems like there's a real parallel between what's happening in medicine and what's been happening in psychology over the past decade, where I think psychologists are also looking at the whole picture in terms of looking at nutrition, looking at sleep, looking at movement, looking at nature connection, and community as all being such an important part of mental health, and this overlap between mental health and physical health. In her book, Cynthia Lee even talks about circadian rhythms, which we've known about for um, a while for something like bipolar disorder, getting people on a regular sleep-wake cycle and the role of circadian rhythms, but that even plays out in in our health and psychological health now when we're thinking about, you know, using our phones at night and staying up until late or waking up in the middle of the night and getting on our phone and how that's messing with our whole system. But there's a whole slew of things in our modern world that are impacting our physical bodies and uh, which in turn impacts our physical health and our and our mental health. Yeah, and I think that's an, a way that our field is also moving that direction instead of thinking like, oh, you have a mental health s- symptom, let's apply a treatment and fix it. Instead, it's like, what are your values? What kind of behavior change do you may- need to make to help improve your life? So it's really kind of a cool parallel. I agree. I loved it when she talked about um, medical students and what they go through. And gosh, did you relate to that in terms of your graduate training in psychology? Because I think graduate training psychology is, at least in research-based psychology, is is pretty similar, uh, where there isn't a lot of room for the mental health and physical health of the people that are are the healers that are going to go out and work with clients and patients. Oh, yeah. I mean, people are very, you know, workaholics and not necessarily always great about self-care. Yeah. Yeah. I was really happy to hear that she addressed that. I also, you know, I work with a lot of medical providers in my job. And actually in my private practice, I work with some some physicians and people in the medical field. And what's interesting is that there is these high achieving cultures in medicine and psychology of people working really hard and getting burnt out, like seeing patient after patient and not having room for their own self-care. And we also put a lot of moral weight on people to be, you know, saving lives and helping people and um, it's just a lot of pressure. So many people are not practicing what they preach in terms of self-care, but then, you know, we kind of say, oh, you're burnt out. You need to go get help when really it's the system it just makes it a very stressful situation. So in this episode, she'll walk you through some of the suggestions she has for healing. And she has 15 of them that she talks about in the book. We, we dive into everything from, you know, what supplements she recommends and food she recommends, but also some of the, um, healing practices that she has done herself. So we really hope you enjoy it. And I think there's a lot to take away from the wisdom of Dr. Cynthia Lee. 
Welcome, Dr. Cynthia Lee. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I picked up your book, A Brave New Medicine, A Doctor's Unconventional Path to Healing Her Autoimmune Illness, because I actually really have gotten more interested in functional medicine for myself over the past few years. And it was more sort of sort of a personal interest that now I also think is really important to share with our listeners and people in the mental health field as well. Um, but I think maybe a good place to start is talking about your experience that brought you to writing this book, because it's a very personal account that then leads you to give some recommendations around um, our medical care. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say, you know, more than a how-to book, this is really a, a memoir about a paradigm shift that I uh, underwent as a conventionally trained doctor in internal medicine um, and how the um, autoimmune illness, you know, I would say I started out with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which you know, a lot of people have heard that term. So I was overactive and then underactive. Um, and over a couple of years, it, it sort of morphed into um, chronic fatigue syndrome and dysautonomia, where I was uh, very debilitated um, for many years. I was housebound for two years and uh, largely housebound for the greater part of a decade. So this was a, a real um, odyssey for me. Um, I did not know functional medicine existed at the time, um, for better or worse. And for, for worse, because it took me a lot longer to, to get to the root causes of my chronic uh, imbalances. But for better, because I really um, I dove into the science and the mechanisms of what was happening to my body. Um, and to my mind as well. There was a lot of emotional um, uh, imbalances along with the physical fatigue and vertigo, um, as well as really chronic uh, insomnia. So, you know, one of the, the uh, take-home lessons that I learned was that the, the delineation that we like to make between mind and body is really an illusion. <laughs> it's, it's one complete circuit. Um, and for those listeners who aren't familiar with the term functional medicine, it's, I would say it's, I mean, there are a lot of um, different definitions for it and sort of where is it categorized. But for me, the way I understand it is integrative medicine is really the umbrella term that says, hey, you know, our bodies are integrated systems. So for example, with my thyroid condition, it's not just a thyroid problem. It's, it's a, an imbalance in the whole hormonal axis. So starting from the pituitary and the hypothalamus in the brain to my thyroid, which is connected to my adrenals and my ovaries. Um, so the entire axis, the whole system is out of balance. And then that system, of course, is connected to my digestive system, my immune system, my neurological system. So that this intricate web, once one piece is pulled sort of out of balance, the, uh, the entire thing shifts. And then, of course, we're related to the ecosystems that we live in, um, as well as the, the complex and mysterious ecosystems that live within us. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk later on about the microbiome and these, these microorganisms that live within our gut, on our skin, and our noses, and our airways, that really um, uh, contribute to more, perhaps, of our health and well-being 
than what we call, quote, ourselves, <laughs> whatever that means anymore. So that's integrative medicine. And then functional medicine takes it a step further where we're looking at the root causes of chronic imbalances. And it can be really boiled down to five classifications, um, toxins, meaning like environmental pollutants and chemicals, um, allergens, uh, and those typically are, it's, it's less, I mean, hay fever and those kind of and cat hair allergies, those kinds of typical allergies are there too. But um, when people come to me as a functional medicine practitioner, we're really looking at stealth allergens, like uh, particularly food allergens that, and reactions that are not, they're a little bit under the radar because we're constantly exposed to them. Um, so I look a lot at, at those, um, infections are sort of in the same class. Like, you know, most people know when they have a sinusitis or a pneumonia or a cold, but, um, oftentimes we have infections that are stealth, like parasites that are in the gut that aren't enough to cause gastroenteritis, but just enough to cause chronic inflammation for years. Um, and stress, which is a huge one that can be emotional, mental, or physical trauma. Um, and, uh, and then the last one, which one, oh, is, a, is just a poor diet, is an inflammatory diet. Um, so those are the five general classes that I'm looking at with my patients. Um, and then there's other pieces of functional medicine too, like in terms of how do we support optimal wellness, um, balancing the hormones, um, healing the gut, um, getting the immune system to function correctly. So those are, those are, those are other pieces. I actually just this morning came from my women's wellness exam and I'm in the process of transitioning to a functional medicine, women's wellness practitioner, but I had this one on the books for the last six months. I'm like, I'll just go in and get it done and my insurance will cover it. And I was taking notes (laughs) while I was in there. Some of the things that I noticed were my intake form was a list of diseases that I just checked yes or no on. So I don't mm-hmm. have any gallbladder disease or glaucoma. <laughs> right. And then, uh, so I just kind of went down the list and checked a bunch of, no- bunch of no's. I was in the waiting room for 45 minutes. By the time I got in there, I had about seven minutes with this doctor who did not ask me about diet, stress, sleep, or even inform me about the perimenopause and menopause, which may be in my near future. And it was a complete contrast between that and seeing a functional medicine uh, women's wellness practitioner who when I left my hour-long appointment with her I left with some suggestions to put MCT oil in my morning smoothie (laughs) and it was just it was completely completely a different experience I sat down with her across from her in a seat for a long time and we talked about all aspects of, of, of my life and my stress levels and I learned about how cortisol impacts estrogen and all sorts of things uh, it it feels like there's just so much that's lost in in current medicine. What does it look like when someone comes to you for for treatment, and how would that be different than someone that's coming in for a traditional? Yeah, and exam? I would say too. I mean, like um, I was one of those doctors, right? Who I was in primary care for a long time. I was doing uh, general primary care um, with you know in an HMO system for a while. And I was um, at the county hospital system doing primary care. I mean, so I have a lot of experience. That was my my first sort of stage of doctorhood. And and I remember, um, first of all, 
not being trained at all in diet. Like if, if somebody even asked me about diet, I wouldn't, I had very little to say, you know, other than kind of just the, well, you know, what kind of processed foods are you eating? And um, it was a kind of a general um, low fat, low sugar sort of spiel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also say the the way that the appointments are set up for 15 minutes, let's say, and sometimes there are 20 and 30 minute appointments that are available now because, um, you know, people are really trying to make some changes. But um, there were times when I would try as a doctor to talk about diet and stress. And I would say that the, the shorter appointments um, make it such that a lot of my patients did not want to hear about that. Like they were like, no, there was a lot of pressure for me, I felt like, to come up with um, a pat solution for whatever it was that ailed them. Um, and, you know, whether it was fatigue or aches or just, um, you know, not sleeping well, um, which were very, very common, I, it, it sort of sets you up both as a practitioner and as a patient to leave with very little answer in terms of wellness and sort of addressing these, um, these vague but prevalent symptoms, right, that sort of plague uh, the mo- a huge percentage of the population, like fatigue or brain fog. Um, so, yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, it was a really a decade-long journey for me of, oh, my God, you know, when I had conditions, chronic fatigue syndrome and a condition called dysautonomia, which is the dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system that governs largely subconscious uh, vital functions like breathing and heart rate and blood pressure, digestion. You know, so these processes were completely in disarray. And so the lived experience was that I always felt like I was on the verge of passing out. And then it contributed to the chronic vertigo. These conditions, um, Western medicine has very, very few answers for. So I was really forced to go outside of the system um, to look for new answers. And it was at that point, you know, my, and I, and I write, you know, very much about this sort of the impact it was on my family. I had, you know, I was married and had two young kids and my marriage was really on its last thread. Um, that was one of the, the main, you know, catalysts for me to think differently. Like, I'm not going to find answers where I was trained. I need to go outside the system. Um, and it was not a sudden opening into alternative practices. <laughs> it, was, it was actually going back to fundamentals, going back to my Pathology 101 textbook and understanding, okay, how do chronic diseases progress? And wow, this has probably been going on many years, if not decades, before my autoimmune thyroid condition was even diagnosed, right? So there have been these subtle imbalances going on, and I've been really detached from what was going on in my body. Um, if I didn't feel well in residency or afterwards, I just, you know, pushed on and didn't want to complain. But those were ways that my body was really signaling there was something amiss already before I felt um, the the impact of, of chronic disease. So, um, but to your question is, you know, how do I practice now is... Um, it's really different. And um, functional medicine itself can be, it's a huge spectrum. It's like any, you know, you can go to a conventional doctor and get a really wide variety 
of, of styles and personalities and, and uh, foci, you know, they focus on different things. Same thing with functional medicine. And I tend to be more of the old fashioned <laughs> uh, functional medicine practitioner. I really um, like to do a super f- a thorough physical exam. So reading the body for mineral deficiencies or vitamin deficiencies or oxidative stress, you know, and um, the testing is really comprehensive. It can get very expensive and also overwhelming. And I, as a patient in functional medicine, uh, you know, seem really overwhelmed uh, by the number of tests and also the costs. And so um, I, I try to minimize the really... Uh, sort of esoteric testing. Um, I also am not super well trained in that either. So I just, I like to stick to the things that I know. Um, but physical exam is super thorough. And, you know, an example of, of that was um, at the uh, functional medicine conference, the first one that I went to, there was a breakout session on the physical exam for the mouth. And I thought, oh, you know, cool. I'd like to go to that. But, you know, surely we're going to end earlier. You know, we have an hour for breakout session. <laughs> and we, we took up the entire hour and barely even, we were supposed to actually do physical exams on the mouth on each other and had about five minutes at the end for that. So I just had no idea we could read so much from the body. Mm-hmm. And um, and so stuff like that to me is just very cool. It's really cool. It also seems that there's something that's really important that comes from the system in which the human that you're encountering lives in. So everything from who are they living with, what is their work environment, those were some of the questions that um, my functional medicine doctor was asking me. And it, it actually sounded really similar to a lot of the questions I asked my clients. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, the mind body, they're not separate. Our physical wellness and our psychological wellness are, um, are so contextual. In your book, I think what was interesting is, is hearing your story of going through medical school and how much your experience of a, as a medical student, you were sort of dehumanized, that there wasn't room to experience things like grief or there wasn't room to um, process what you were going through as a medical student. And it's almost like early on in that training, you're taught to separate those, the psychology, you're taught, you're taught to, sep- to separate that from, um, from doing medicine. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences of medical training and how you think it influences our, our young doctors? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, in hindsight, when I look at it, it was a form of trauma, um, you know, in the way that like a a boot camp might be traumatic for some. Um, And it is, um, it's a way of coping with the intensity of not just the, um, the academic material, but really the, the confronting the human condition, um, just you know, the, the schedule um, is such that, I mean, we're in the hospital for 36-hour shifts, and, um, you know, a lot has changed since the time I trained. It's gotten kinder and a little gentler. It's still fairly brutal. Um, but, you know, we're, we're confronting as young, most of us, you know, in our 20s, um, young doctors in training, life and death situations, and uh, and the way, the pace of it is such that if we hesitate or, um, you know, God forbid, 
you know, express emotion in front of our peers or our patients, that it, it can actually cloud uh, judgment and uh, sort of response time. And there is something really to be said about that for super acute uh, situations, of course, like, um, you know, I, I write about the, the time that I was in trauma surgery uh, in that rotation. And it was just, you know, it was uh, motor vehicle accident after accident, um, all sorts of traumas coming in through the ER. And there was just no time. Like you just had to suppress it, mm-hmm. um, which, which in the moment I actually understand is, is could be life-saving for the patient. Um, the, the challenge though, is that once we stop, once we pause, that there needs to be some outlet where we can, um, begin to release that grief. Otherwise it's going to just be suppressed and eventually can make us sick. Um, either making us sick or, uh, if we detach enough, then we detach from our patients, the people that we are really trying to connect with, and we really detach from ourselves. Yes. Some of the um, strategies that you talk about in how to heal in the book actually come come from reconnecting mm-hmm. with yourself. And I'd love to discuss those further. The, the way that you write is really beautiful and that you share your personal memoir and, and then how that memoir led to this insight around a strategy of healing. And you, you have 15 of them that you, that you share that you kind of uncover as you read. And um, really the, the first one that, that you talk about is, is the importance of asking questions and really the role of, of the patient being active in, in, the, in the process with their physicians and with their healers. And the story that you tell about radiation, can you tell that story and then, and then maybe help us in, in how we ask questions of our doctors? Yeah, it was, um, it was a moment when um, I was a new mother. Um, my baby was about three or four months old and I was um, just diagnosed with uh, overactive thyroid, hyperthyroidism. And I was, you know, I was feeling completely, I mean, I, I felt like I was going mad, uh, couldn't sleep, was, you know, wasting away, I just lost a ton of weight. Um, and uh, my heart was racing. And, I, and I, had a, I had a very strong sense that I was overly active in my thyroid. So I saw a uh, top-notch specialist. And, uh, you know, I was three years out of my residency training. So at, you know, at some level, I felt like I had a sense of mastery, you know, just in terms of being fresh um, with research and, um, and protocols and just, you know, the training was very, very, like some, some parts of my training were just so automatic. I knew them pat. Um, but in another regard, when I was seeing this specialist, you know, he was um, like a recent professor emeritus at a academic institution, I had really treated thyroid disorders his whole life. And I thought, my God, like he knows so much more than I do. Um, so I really deferred to him. And uh, he had told me that, well, there's, he wasn't clear on the diagnosis. I had hyperthyroidism, but he wasn't clear on what kind. And, um, and he recommended I do a radioactive iodine <clears throat> uptake exam, which is, you know, I take a nuclear um, pill and they take images of my thyroid. And at the time, 
you know, first of all, I didn't question it that much because I had prescribed that test to so many of my patients, you know, without thinking sort of twice mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. Um, the other piece was that I asked, I did ask him, you know, do, is it really necessary? You know, suddenly being on the other side, I was listening to nuclear, nuclear, like this sounds poisonous. And he said, well, it'll help us give a diagnosis. And without a diagnosis, we, you know, we don't really know how to, how to proceed. So I, I underwent that test, and because I was a new mom and I was nursing, I had to uh, pump and discard my breast milk. Um, no one really even um, counseled me on how long. I mean, I was at home calculating the half-life for this radioactive tracer and wanting to minimize exposure to my baby. And But it was also very emotional, you know? Like, I, yeah. I didn't feel safe to hold her for right. a few days. Um and then I was I was feeding her formula. It was um, it was difficult, and and then I go back for the follow up exam um, for my my results, and there was a substitute um, physician who was covering for my doctor who was away, and he you know gave me the results and said you have postpartum thyroiditis, which is Hashimoto's, and. And and then I was leaving, and he said, "You know, I'm just really curious. Like, why did you, you know, why did you guys decide to do a radioactive, you know, uptake exam?" And I, you know, I kind of paused, and he said, "Well, it's." I said, "Wasn't it necessary?" And he said, "Well, no. You know, you could have done an ultrasound, and we could have just followed your course and seen what what was happening. I mean, you're a nursing mother, and that you know really hit me then that." I had given my power over to somebody else. Yeah. And even though he, he certainly had more expertise than I did in terms of seeing postpartum thyroid cases, um, but he was an expert of one kind. And, um, I, and then I realized that I had, uh, yeah, I hadn't owned my own power yeah. at that point. I think many of us have been in doctor's appointments where, maybe we haven't asked questions about a medication prescribed or just assume that, that this doctor knows, knows everything and that we haven't gone to medical school. Mm -hmm. So what, why should we intervene or ask questions or say anything or ask about alternatives? And um, it seems so, it seems so important to have, have a voice and that you have also some expertise on your own body and your experience within your body as well, which which was another um, strategy for getting well, which is the strategy of inhabiting your body. And you talk about in the book how you use sound healing and Chinese medicine and Qigong as part of your healing. Can you talk a bit about that and using alternative treatments such as those? Yeah, it was, um, so that, that principle, inhabiting the body, um, was really a profound shift for me. It sounds so simple, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's one of those, I think those, those timeless truths that is really simple, but it's not always easy. And, um, and I would say, yeah, my medical training certainly um, encouraged me to detach from my body. But I think it's, I think it's a culture-wide phenomenon. I mean, because I'm, I'm treating patients every day now. Uh, most of them are not doctors and they're really detached. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we tend to live much of our lives out of our heads. And even, you know, I'll see, page, I'll see people jogging on the trail or hiking or biking. And a lot of them are listening to a podcast or, oh. um, or 
listening to the radio, which is fine, but they're not, they're generally not in their bodies when they're moving them. So for me, um, because my physical symptoms were so uncomfortable, I mean, really my way to cope was to detach even more. But um, when I learned that you can't heal something that you're detached from, I realized, oh my God, I have to go into that wild, you know, unruly <laughs> terrain that is my body mm. and actually be with the discomfort. Um, and um, I was not a good sitting meditator and mindfulness. I, I did try that, you know, in terms of um, bringing the mind into the body. I also tried neural retraining, which these are, um, uh, there's a set of exercises, mind-body practices that can uh, really help reconnect the mind and the body, those pathways. And uh, it worked temporarily. But so for me, it was um, going deeper into Qigong, which is a moving meditation based in ancient, ancient uh, China. And traditional Chinese medicine, martial arts are all based on the principles of Qigong. And as a scientist, I, I recognize just not only shift the patterns that my neurons are connected in, uh, but also a way, um, there's a science of epigenetics where our DNA, the way it folds, um, the DNA that we inherit from our parents is fixed. That's the genetic mm -hmm. code. But the way that the DNA is folded turns it on and off, turns on certain genes, turns off certain genes. And that's in constant dynamic flux based on what we eat, drink, breathe, think, and how we move. And so the way I understand it is that that's what Qigong was able to do for me, was to begin to shift what my DNA was expressing and therefore the trillions of cells in my body we're shifting from chronic inflammation into healing and same with the neural pathways. And with dysautonomia, you know, this dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, it, it's really a dysfunction of the, um, the neurological and the hormonal axes between the mind and the body. So you began working on inhabiting your body and and then you also worked on inhabiting your home in a different way and changing some of the, the factors in your home that may have been contributing to your illness. You talk about detoxifying your house. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a process that I think a lot of um, people undergo when they think about having children or start having children uh, is how do we get toxins out of our home? Um, maybe even if we were to change three things today, what could we do um, to reduce toxins in our home? Yeah, you know, one thing I didn't even write about, it, it's a huge, huge issue right now because about 50% of buildings, that was the latest statistic I saw in America, um, are have, have mold um, issues in them uh, with water damage. So um, this was something that we didn't have to deal with uh, in our home, but I, I, you know, I talk a lot about it with my patients who have it in their homes. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's one of the biggest things to really remedy. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, if you're renting, see if your landlord can really address it. Most people don't understand uh, how direct a neurotoxin mold is. So it really affects the entire body. 
Um, but in terms of chemicals, uh, it's also indoor air pollution. In, in most places in America, indoor air pollution is more of an issue than outdoor air mm -hmm. pollution. And it's invisible. So and it's, it's everywhere. And it's in, you know, most buildings. And so we can't really see it. And so the first thing I would say, there's a class of um, fluorinated chemicals, and it can be anything from uh, flame retardants that are sprayed on foam, uh, particularly furniture, um, to Teflon uh, nonstick coating pans to... Um, yeah, and children's pajamas. If you get the kind of pajamas... For that, um, don't, that, yeah, that yes. don't fit snugly. They have a big yellow thing on them that says they're. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. They, yeah, we're putting these things on our children, yeah. our babies. Yeah. yeah, and you know what? What the science shows too is that they don't really slow down the rate of burning. So it's not like oh, if you remove flame retardants, that you know the risk of fire is going to be much much stronger. It it's been shown not to be the case. And yeah. so it's just a superfluous toxic chemical that is um, in wide use. And so in California recently, um, because most uh, the California furniture standards are sort of set the standards for the rest of the country. Um, there was recently a, um, uh, a phasing out of flame retardants on sofas and chairs and, and bedding. So that's a huge step forward. But these chemicals don't break down. So they're in our environment, they're in our bodies. And uh, so that's one of the big steps. Another one that's simple, that where you don't have to change that much, you know, about your house is, um, is turning on the vent. If you have a, a gas uh, stovetop, just turn on the vent. There's, mm. there's a lot of emissions that come out mm. of um, gas stoves. And then another one that's uh, fairly simple too, you don't have to get so, super technical, is uh, fragrances. So if there's anything that ha is perfumey um, or anything that smells chemically, you know, like a shower, a vinyl shower curtain, mm -hmm. those are the things you kind of want to, um, to remove. Essential oils, which are fragrances, those are fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the synthetic perfumes are, they're, they change hormones. They <laughs> disrupt the the communication between hormone axes, they contribute to thyroid disease and obesity, diabetes. So it's, um, well, I'll say, yeah, they're in some cases they're associated with those and in other cases, the research has actually shown causation. Yeah. We've been so marketed to and trained up that there's a clean smell that we're supposed to have. Yes. And actually if it has that chemical clean smell, it's probably not that good for us. Right. Yeah. And bleach, ble actually chlorine bleach is a big one. Yeah. So uh, using bleach to, yeah, to clean is, is one of the first things. Yeah. No, Good old vinegar and essential oils. Oh, yeah. Well and <laughs> vinegar, baking soda, <laughs> yeah. kind of these low cost grandmas. You know, yeah. Like, you can get it in bulk. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And related to that, detoxifying our house was also detoxifying some of your, some of the food and, and changing, changing how you were eating, that that played a, mm -hmm. a big role in, in your healing. Can you talk right. about diet yeah. and yeah. Yeah. So doc, detoxifying our bodies is, is really big. And yeah. And I would say, how do we come home to our bodies? Um, and that really, I think is, is a good definition for health and, you know, the, the, the definition of home can extend, of course, to our physical environments as well. And one of the things that, that I had noticed um, when I started learning about all the toxins 
lurking around in our environment was I felt the sense of overwhelm um, the way I, I have been with just the climate crisis as well. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, it feels so big. It's everywhere. How do we do this? And, you know, and that causes a lot of stress and that contributes to right imbalances in the body. And so one of the, the areas in functional medicine that we focus on is actually how do we support our bodies to detoxify more efficiently? And a lot of times when somebody comes in and they're more, quote, sensitive, right, to fragrances or to chemicals, that they are genetically, um, the genes that govern the detoxification pathways that are most, they largely reside in the liver, um, are, they might just be slower detoxifiers. So that there is some genetic component to that. There's a huge amount of detox that happens with the gut, um, the kidneys, respiration. Um, so the whole body really is how do we help uh, the body become more efficient at eliminating these chemicals um, that are affecting us negatively. And uh, you mentioned diet. So healing the gut is huge. Um, because not only are we able to eliminate more through our bowel movements if they're regular, um, but we can build up the integrity of our gut lining. So we're absorbing less. Like let's say we're eating stuff and we're, you know, we're eating pesticides and herbicides. I mean, one planet, one experiment, right? Everything's connected. So even, you know, it's ideal to eat organic if you can, um, less pesticide and herbicide residues, but you know, I mean, it's um, nothing is 100% sort of chemical free. And so we're ingesting a lot of things that we don't even realize we're ingesting. And if the integrity of our gut lining is leaky, uh, then we're going to be absorbing more. And so one way really, you know, I go through in my book steps on how to heal the gut. And the primary way is going to be through diet change, um, not just removing processed foods, uh, and rancid oils, which are used in a lot of processed foods, um, but you know, reducing um, chemical exposures, glyphosate, Roundup, which is used on, you know, sort of so it's used everywhere and it's used it's on used a lot of schools. Products. Yes, <laughs> on yes the, I, I saw someone on spraying the asphalt, it on asphalt, right? Yeah, or on the, on the sidewalk out there yes. spraying it outside of school, and I almost pulled over because I was so angry about that. Yeah, and then, yeah, some right. kid's going to walk across that and take it into their living room. Right, right. And then yeah. a lot of, you know, uh, non-organic wheat products are, are really soaked in Roundup to help the process along. And, uh, you know, so we're inadvertently taking in things that we, we are not aware of. Um, so healing the gut, uh, really, you know, providing, removing parasites, as I mentioned, if they're there, you know, kind of identifying that. And any doctor can do that. Anyone can ask for a stool. Um, for a series of stool tests, um, re repleting nutrients, uh, key amino acids and fatty acids, which help build up the gut. Um, you know, digestive enzymes is a very easy thing for people to take to help sort of them digest better and break down foods um, that their bodies need to uh, heal the gut lining. And then uh, re-inoculation, which is really um, probiotic food, but foods that um, both feed and replace healthy gut bacteria. 
um, which again, which is something they're the keepers of the intestinal lining is we've got, uh, you know, roughly a hundred trillion microorganisms from viruses to uh, yeasts and bacteria inside our guts, which are guarding and maintaining the gut lining. So if those are out of balance, then our, our walls are going to be leaky. And so how do we do that? And, you know, my favorite way is, is through foods because um, everything is just in the right doses and it's, um, it's really what we co-evolved with. Um, but a lot of patients, yeah, benefit from probiotics, from prebiotics, from fiber supplements. It uh, just really varies. I loved how you write about going into nature and just having more contact with nature also helps our our probiotics too of, of being Absolutely. in the being in the ground, yeah. being yeah. digging in the garden, having a little dirt under your fingernails is a good thing. Yes, yeah, and you know, and then to to your work too, stress reduction, anything we can do to not just relax in the mind, but again to bring that relaxation in the mind down into the body mm-hmm. is incredibly healing to the gut. I mean, I have patients who are on, you know, just in, impeccable diets. And, you know, tons of, you know, and varied plants and, um, you know, um, probiotic foods and they're doing all these things, but they, if they don't, if they can't manage their stress, they're not really healing. And Mm -hmm. so it's really like, how do we support the whole mind, body, spirit in terms of healing? Um, We can't just look at the gut in terms of the physical components that are going into it. Mm-hmm. And the other piece of detox I do want to just plug in is, um, you know, the importance of key nutrients because the liver is doing a lot of this detox. There are uh, key vitamins like B complex and taking an active folate, um, magnesium, and uh, vitamin C, glutathione support like uh, and acetylcysteine. There are these compounds that help any and everyone's liver pathways detoxify more efficiently. They're just, they're cofactors that are necessary for the enzymes to work. So would you recommend anyone being, taking those supplements on a regular basis? I mean, obviously you're not giving medical advice to our community, but yeah, but those would be good ones to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about specific foods? If we were to maybe add three to five foods that you think everyone would, you know, unless you have an allergy to them benefit from yeah. would be some yeah. foods you'd recommend. So, I mean, some classes of foods with crucifers, which are right. The, um, the greens like broccoli, um, kale, collard greens, and, and also cauliflower, which is not a green, but this class is rich in these nutrients, uh, particularly the folate. And so, and they're going to help detox. So one of the things that I love to prescribe is a, is green juices. You're do, you're drinking green kombucha. Yeah. <laughs> so like that's I'm a doubling up. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and um, the um, that's huge. So you know, right now we're having this crazy wildfire and pollution um, in Northern California. Yeah. And so I'm just telling my patients, hey, you know what? Don't forget, you know, do your green smoothies once a day. Uh, every day, you know, even after the air clears, because there's still particulate matter on the ground. But it's something good, uh, you know, that's that's uh, easy to build into your lifestyle. It's not a taking away, it's an adding in, which is always easier than uh, eliminating. And um, 
another class uh, are the sulfur-containing foods, so onions and garlic, um, chives, uh, leeks. You know the, these these sort of uh, foods that add a lot of flavor to our foods. Um, they also help detoxify. Um, and then I just you know, and then another uh, easy rule is just the rainbow colors, right? So getting your beets in or beet juice, um, carrots are great, um, pomegranates. So just the richness of different colors, you know, eggplant. Um, and so, yeah, those are just some easy take-homes. Bone broth for people who are not um, uh, vegetarian is, uh, is really rich in the amino acids that help us detoxify as well as to heal the gut. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. That is, is very helpful. And I can imagine a lot of listeners wanting to make some good stir fries out of all of that. You talk about your own experience of grief. How did, how did grief impact you and, and how did you work your way through it? For me, I was always very drawn to psychology and, you know, archetypal psychology, kind of going doing depth work um, spiritually and uh, learning different paradigms. Um, but so much of it, I didn't, you know, understand this was, this kind of goes back to inhabiting the body. I, so much of it was mental and I didn't know that I was harboring a lot of grief still in my body. Um, you know, for us, a lot of grief we define as like the loss of a loved one, or for me, like the loss of, you know, my, my health and vitality for a decade and the loss of that to my family, you know, of me being unwell. But there's other losses, you know, like ancestral grief and just how do we mourn for uh, those who have really suffered before us? How do we, you know, the the environment impacts so many of us and yet we don't actually classify it as grief. Um, One of the exercises I work with now with medical students at UCSF is um, what are the things you gave up to become a doctor? And these are important uh, areas of grief, I think, that have been uh, really lost to exploration and to permission to come out. How do I release more and more um, of what I'm carrying? And then what happens is that after you release that, there's a spaciousness within, and then compassion, confidence, peace, you know, these these qualities we attribute to resilience just naturally fill in those spaces. So it's it's more as a side effect than trying to attain those qualities directly. Like, how do you develop resilience? How do you, how do you get from a helpless mindset, right? If you're in total despair, you're housebound, you're, you've been just dismissed by every doctor and you can't get out of your own house and you feel like you have the flu, how do you shift from that into a growth mindset to, you know, to really have your agency back? And, you know, I said there was no way I could have made that direct leap. It was more about releasing. It takes a lot of bravery. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I wasn't, I, I didn't necessarily feel brave. I felt very desperate and yeah. cornered into having to do this if I wanted my life. Yeah. So, yeah. And maybe the bravery is now also speaking up about it and yeah. saying some things that um, shake up the medical system a bit in terms of recommendations you're making. You write that doctors could use more empathy, but that's not the whole picture. And that 
really our medical system is sick. And at the end of the, the end of the book, you talk about your suggestions for healing a sick system. So as we close, I'd like for you, maybe if we could step back and look at that big picture again, what would be some of your recommendations for healing this, this system? Yeah, I mean, what's, um, you know, if we get into functional medicine and some of these, um, these paradigms of systems biology, it can, things can get very complicated very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's, what's wonderful about systems is that what works for a microsystem works on a macro system <laughs> and their patterns. And so, you know, when I begin to think about, oh my God, how do we fix the medical system? It feels really <laughs> overwhelming, but it's like, oh, wait a minute. You know what? We treat it, you know, and that's what my husband said. He's, he's in public policy and he said, well, wait a minute. Like, let's just look at the medical system as a patient. What would you prescribe? And, you know, what I would prescribe for that, and I would say the most uh, heartening response from an unexpected response from my book so far has been from mainstream doctors who um, not just are feeling really burned out themselves, but they they know that, um, right, that the system's broken and that they need more tools, um, not just for themselves, but for their patients. And uh, so there's a lot of movement there and a lot of desire um, so I would prescribe the same thing. Like, what would it look like if, if doctors were immersed in wellness and it doesn't even have to be a full immersion, but even, even a partial immersion so that we actually knew what it felt like to, to take care of our bodies, to be, uh, to inhabit our bodies and be reconnected with our humanity, to, uh, be fed nourishing foods, right. Instead of fast foods to um, be encouraged to sleep regularly, um, to <laughs> just take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, I think it, the paradigm needs to go beyond that in terms of changing the way we think about root causes of chronic conditions, the same way that we have needed to rethink how we think about uh, typical toxins and um, poisons, because the, the situation that we have now is very different than we had um, several decades ago. So we need to begin to open our minds beyond um, the way that we had been trained. I have, um, I have a lot of hope and optimism for uh, some of these changes that can happen even in the system the way that it currently is. It could be something as simple as changing the questions that we ask, right? So asking these new questions, but in the exam room and switching the question from what's the matter with you, which also is, uh, can be stigmatizing. It can be labeling someone with a chronic disease um, versus, is, you know, why is it happening? So what are the root causes, right, that are triggering this, uh, this symptom of anxiety or depression or, um, you know, constipation or fatigue? That, that's something that can happen within a 15-minute appointment. Mm-hmm. If, if our listeners are interested in seeking out a functional medicine doctor, mm-hmm. are there good resources or websites you'd recommend for them? Yeah, to the look? only one I'm aware of right now is, um, is at functionalmedicine.com. Mm-hmm. It's the Institute for Functional Medicine, uh, their website, and there's a find a practitioner tab on there, and mm-hmm. you just enter your city and zip code, and they'll, they'll give you practitioners that are available in your area. Um, but again, you know, I just encourage everyone to kind of to look at the websites to take advantage of 
uh, complimentary screening calls if they if they offer those, uh, just to get a sense of fit. And I would say that fit almost matters more than the kind of um, mm-hmm. medicine that's practiced. Yeah. So oftentimes when people come to me for referrals, um, it's going to depend. Sometimes it's an osteopath. Sometimes it's a functional medicine doctor. Sometimes it's an acupuncturist. Um, but I, I always say that, yeah, make sure that the fit is, is there. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And there is a tremendous amount of resources and suggestions in, in the book that you write. So again, it's a memoir. And at the end, it sort of has this whole other add on. It could have been two books, <laughs> whole other add on of really concrete suggestions of what you can do in each of these 15 areas. We just tapped into a few of them today, but you go through 15 different areas and specific suggestions and recommendations that are extremely helpful. So that might be a good place for folks to start and, and to try some of these things on their own. And then also maybe looking for a physician or another f- functional medicine practitioner that would support them in, in doing this work. So thank you so much, Dr. Mm-hmm. Lee. It's just Thank you a, so much it, for having me. Yes, it was a real treat to have you on and just to read your book. And it's a real mind shift. And I'm so grateful that there are people like you being brave in medicine in the way that you are and sharing this work with all of us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. Mm-hmm.